welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're a budding writer, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including critically acclaimed authors Bonnie Garmus, Jane Harper and Kirsty Capes. CBC offers a wide range of online writing courses designed to help you no matter what your current skill level is. For people at the start of their writing journey, they have a four-week creative writing for beginners course led by author and founder of CBC, Anna Davis. The course will teach you to unleash the potential of your imagination. You'll gain the confidence to put pen to paper and get to work on a story of your own creation. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of creative writing for beginners or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the novelist and short story writer, Kit Duval. We spoke to Kit about getting published for the first time in her 50s, about working class representation in publishing and about her new memoir. This episode was recorded in front of an audience at Wimbledon Bookfest, so that's why it will sound a little different. But it's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Kit Duval, to Always Take Notes. Could we start with your new memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes? What made you want to turn to memoir after writing fiction for so long? Um, hard cash. I was offered... <laughs> I, I was offered... So, someone said, why don't you write a memoir? And I was midway through a... Uh, novel at the time and they offered me some money so I stopped writing the novel and started writing the memoir I had no intention of writing a memoir before someone suggested it it's amazing what you'll do for money and could you tell us uh, and the audience a little bit about the memoir and the the ground it covered so it's the it's your mixed race childhood in Birmingham in the 60s and 70s Uh, your mother's Irish your father from the Caribbean Big themes that I found in the book, poverty, racism, and, and particularly this kind of austere Jehovah's Witness childhood. I was wondering, reading it, was it a kind of exorcism or an act of catharsis to, to get this out? No, it wasn't. And it's not really that miserable. Um, it, it sounds quite bad. It isn't. It isn't. It is. There's funny bits in it. Um, so I was born in 1960 in Birmingham. My father's from St. Kitts in the West Indies. My mother's from Wexford in Ireland. And um, we just had a very unconventional childhood. Uh, My parents were unsuited in every single way. My dad was six foot five, black. My mum's five foot two, white. Um, She was a very devout Irish Catholic um, who suffered is the only way I can say. They suffered the experience of having Jehovah's Witnesses knock the door. And she was converted when I was six. Um, My father was never converted. And he, so I don't know if anyone knows about Jehovah's Witnesses, but they believe that, well, they believed that the end was going to come in 1975, the end of the world, that is. Good people, Jehovah's Witnesses, would be saved and bad people would be destroyed. So um, my mother subscribed to that. So she spent all of our life 
waiting for paradise. We were waiting for paradise, except I never thought I'd get to paradise because I was too naughty. Um, and my father, when he came from the West Indies to England, uh, only came for like two or three years. He didn't know he was going to meet an Irish woman that didn't believe in birth control. So five children later, he's still here, still waiting to go back to the West Indies, to his paradise. So they were running these two parallel waits. Uh, my mum waiting for paradise on earth. My dad waiting for paradise in the West Indies. And five of us going, hello, we're in the here and now. So it, it was an odd, it was, it was a bizarre childhood because of all of those reasons. You mentioned your siblings in the acknowledgements, and I wonder what the experience of writing about your own family was, and how did you go about sort of, did you get their approval for some of the stories, or did you just write it and then show them the manuscript? Um, well, I wrote it, I'm sort of the custodian of the family history, I don't know why, I've got a really good memory, and so even before writing the memoir, I would have my siblings would ring me and say, who was that woman that lived up the road? And I'd just know for some reason. So I was the best placed person, really, to talk about our childhood. But when I wrote it, because there's some difficult things there, I really wanted to make sure that not only had I got it right, but that my siblings um, felt OK about it. I'm getting paid, they're not. I'm going to give the potted history of our life, they're not. So when I finished it, and it was about 72,000 words, I think, I sent it to, uh, on the Friday it was, and I sent it to my five siblings, four siblings. I said, right, here it is. Um, read it. If you object to anything, you just send me the page and the paragraph number or the chapter, and it comes out. No negotiation. I will not try and persuade you that that did happen. Anything you're uncomfortable with, just tell me and it comes out. So I sent it on the Friday, 70,000 words, and I thought if they each object to 10,000 words, I haven't got a book. So I was waiting, um, you know, they, they rang obviously to, to say that they liked bits and pieces, but one sister objected to two words. That was it, nothing else. And all of them just went, yep. That's what it was like. That's what happened. And that was great. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written it if, if they'd objected. I wouldn't have done it. It's, it's too important to me that they agree with my, and it is my version, but they agree with my version. Obviously, there's loads of stuff that happened to them that isn't in the book because it's, it's a memoir of mine. But the memoir only goes up to 21. So they're in it a lot you know, my childhood up until I left home when I was 16 and up until 16, you know, they feature in it a lot. And of course, I'm talking about my parents and their parents, my aunt and their aunt, my grandparents, their grandparents. So they would have, they had to be on, on board. What about your parents themselves? Are they still alive? They're both dead and I would not have written it if they'd been alive because they'd hate it. They'd absolutely hate it. They'd both... Even when we were alive, even we, we were alive, when they were alive, they used to justify how we were brought up in this and rewrite it. You know, up until my mother died, she was rewriting um, her mothering of us. So I wouldn't have written it. And, and it's not at all um, 
it, it, not there's any score to settle and I'm not disrespectful to my parents, but it, they wouldn't have liked their background and their foibles and their, my mother's mental illness. She would not have liked it being out there. You mentioned that you have a sort of impressive memory for detail. Obviously, in the book, you recall some conversations in, in impressive detail. I wondered how much of that was sort of uh, imagination or recreation of the conversation. You're capturing a truth of it, but obviously not the exact details, or whether you actually could just point by point No, no, remember. no. <laughs> I don't think there's any way I could remember word for word, apart from the conversation I had with my dad when I was stoned, when I was desperately trying to cling on to sanity. And there weren't he, many words in that conversation, though, I don't think. There weren't many, <laughs> but well, I was trying not to speak because I was so paranoid about saying the wrong thing. And he was looking at me like, something wrong with you? And I was trying to... Mm, it was terrible. Um, so I can remember that conversation because it's seared into my memory that I was making a fool of myself and that he would know I was stoned. Uh, apart from that, there is... There are bits and pieces. There are a couple of verbatim memories. The rest of it, I've tried to capture the spirit of what my, you know, the exchange that went on. But there are definitely some verbatim bits in there. And I saw there's this note at the beginning saying that some characters are amalgams and things like that. I mean, what do you think more broadly in memoir about the kind of rules of this are? About, you know, you've been upfront about what you've done, but about whether you can fictionalise, and is there a risk as well if people are smoothing parts of the factual narrative and yeah. in the interest of the narrative? What are your thoughts on that more generally? I think you can smooth bits of the narrative. I haven't in, in this instance, but I, I don't think there's anything... I don't think you have to give uh, the, all the guts and the blood, you know, if you write a memoir. I think there's nothing wrong with not saying the whole truth as long as what you say is part of the truth. I don't think anyone that pays six ninety nine for a book, in my case, I think it's thirteen ninety nine. It's the hardback, but I think if you buy a paperback book and it's six ninety nine, I don't think that gives you the right to know information that someone doesn't want to share. I don't believe you have to share everything, but you do have to tell the truth and the spirit of the truth. For example, there's two boyfriends I mention in the book. Um, they're both disguised. Because they were shit at 19. They were absolutely vile. They've turned into lovely 45-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old granddads who were lovely, but they were shits at 19. I don't want to talk about them as they were at 19 for their children to read about them, for their wives to read about them. There's no... I don't think there's any benefit in that. I think if they read the memoir I hope they don't but if they do I think they'd know that's them but no one else would know I would know they would know but I've got no desire to embarrass anyone for being uh, you know a revolting 19 year old I you know what's what's the point in that but what they said to me and some of the scenes that uh, you know that did happen between us are in the book I'm sure they appreciate your discretion. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> there have been a few books published in recent years, people reflecting on their childhoods, especially challenging upbringings. I'm thinking of Educated by Tara Westover in particular. Yeah. Was that a genre that you were conscious of when you were writing or did you just write the story that you, that you wanted to write? I wasn't conscious of the genre, but I was really conscious that it, my life wasn't miserable. It wasn't desperate. It wasn't sad. 
There are some shit bits to it and there's some great bits to it. And I was absolutely determined that I would capture the joy of my life. And there's a lot of joy in my life, a lot of hard things too. I can remember reading Angela's Ashes many years ago. And people, I think it coined the phrase misery lit from, from Angela's Ashes. And I can remember reading Angela's Ashes and, and laughing. He captures hunger, a child's hunger, so beautifully and so funny. There's a scene where his mother gives him a flask and it's got potatoes in it. And all, he's got to deliver this flask to his dad and it's a way away. And all the way there he's thinking, how can I get a potato out of the flask? I thought that was hilarious. I know it isn't because he's hungry, but I can, you know, there's, there's a lot of comedy, even in hard times, you know, lots of comics are themselves manic depressives, depressive people, unhappy people. Um, and I think there is a, uh, a way of getting through difficult events uh, by the humour that you have and also the solidarity that we had um, as brothers and sisters. So I, I was determined I wasn't going to say, oh, it was terrible, we were hungry, we were poor, racism, um, abuse by the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses and this and that and mental illness of my parents, all true, but there's such a lot of good times and joy. And, and you know, I have to say, we laughed at our parents. You know, they were a source of fun to us because they were both bizarre. And so we would sort of, when they were doing their... For example, my mother worked at, um, as a nursing auxiliary in a hospital and she worked with black nurses. She was Irish, she worked with a lot of black nurses. And every so often she would come home if she'd had a bad night and she'd say to her, there's four girls, she'd say, you know, black women, they're like this. And we'd be like, Mum, there's four of us here. She didn't know, she, I mean, she didn't, she'd just carry on, talk about black nurses, how horrible they were to her, black nurses, black nurses, and we'd be like nudging each other like she's mad. And then she'd go out, and my father would come home from work, black man, bus driver, used to have the, the, the late bus home from the pub, loads of white drunks get on, abuse him. He'd come home, White people this, white people that. And we'd be like, oh, God, Dad, half white, half white. Um, so we had fun at their expense. You know, we weren't internalising this racism ever. We just thought, they're both strange. As soon as I get to 16, I'm leaving. Could we roll back now to your own life, and particularly your journey towards becoming a writer. So you mm -hmm. talk in the book about how the only book you had at home was the Bible and that you read at school, but this was a kind of fairly burdensome experience and that you began reading in your 20s um, when a, a lawyer you were working for gave you a list of books. Could you tell us a bit about how your discovery of reading then led towards your own interest in writing? I discovered reading as an antidote to severe anxiety. So I couldn't sleep. I'd taken too many drugs for many years and stopped um, fearing for my mental health. And um, I was recommended 10 books to read just so that I could sleep. Um, not that they would send me to sleep, but that I'd stay awake and have something to do. Um, so I read these books and the, the man that recommended these 10 books was a military man. They're quite military books. The Red Badge of Courage, the Siege of Krishnapur, Three Men in a Boat, etc. And also Madame Bovary and also Therese Racan. What it did, 
um, because they're the first books I've, I've read voluntarily, is it formed my tastes. So I read exclusively the classics for maybe, uh, maybe 15 years, 17 years. I just worked my way through. What I had noticed is the books that my, this solicitor had recommended to me all had a black spine and they were all published by Penguin. So I just went back to the shop and I went, 10 of those black books, please. Got another 10, got another 10, got another 10. Until I'd worked my way through what people would consider the canon. I, I don't believe in a canon. I think you could just read whatever you want. But um, you know those terrible things that you get at the end of the year in the Sunday Times where you do the tick? How many books have you read? And I go, all of them. I love it. <laughs> Uh, because I've read so many of the classics and it formed my taste and it just made me appreciate um, good literature. Not that there isn't good literature published, but I had to force myself away from the classics into contemporary literature because I found that I was just reading that and there's so much good stuff that's published now. You also mention in the book that um, Stevie Wonder is a bit of a literary influence. You said that you studied his lyrics, almost yeah. like poems. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why his songs in particular sort of resonated with you? Um, well, mostly I was listening to Stevie Wonder when I was stoned. And, of course, something sounds really profound when you, you know, like, oh, my God, really wise. In Stevie Wonder's case, I think, with the, with the exception of one or two tragic songs that he did, uh, his lyrics are very political very, very political, um, beautiful lyrics. Him and Joni Mitchell, I think, are some of the best uh, lyric writers. Because Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize, didn't he, for, for his lyrics? <laughs> no, Joni Mitchell or nobody. Um, so, yes, yeah, Stevie Wonder's lyrics very much spoke to me at a time when I was very uh, susceptible. I left home, so I was 16, left home, Waiting for Armageddon to come, so waiting to die, essentially. I still, I believed that Jehovah's Witnesses were right, so the end was going to come in 1975, this is 1976, so it's late. So I've got to pack it in. I'm going to die anyway, so if I'm going to die for having a spliff, I'm going to die for having many spliffs. So I just, I was wild. I was wild. And I was looking for answers, and I was also thinking at that time, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses were wrong, maybe I might live, was there another way to believe, Is, was there another way of living out there? And so I was very much um, listening to lyrics, I don't like poetry, I don't listen to poetry, but I was um, listening to lyrics, discussing lyrics, that was my first introduction, I think, to literature, if you can call lyrics literature, which I think you can. Could you talk us through your... Um career that you did before becoming a published writer. So I have a, a list of jobs you've done here as massage therapist, waitress, backing singer, administrator in a divorce registry, secretary at the CPS, legal executive. How did this work through the, those 10 or 15 years of what you were doing? Yeah, it sounds like a career. It's so not a career. It was jobs. You know, so the first job I ever got was actually working for a neighbour on the markets, uh, selling terrible, terrible underwear. Um, the next job was working for a factory that made hospital bedsteads and sent them to Abu Dhabi. Uh, and then it was a series of jobs uh, until I got to the divorce registry. All, I mean, I was doing the backing singing. I've all, I did that until I realised how shit I was. But anyway, I did that for quite a few years. 
Then I was a waitress. Then I, when I started working in the divorce registry, I, I did sort of get interested in what, it, because it was people's divorce petitions and you had a pink, a green and a white copy and you had to put the pink one there and the white. I mean, this is before the internet. Thank God for the internet. So it was, everything was triplicate and you had to put the pink one there, blah, blah, blah. And so I'd read it. And of course, divorce petitions are stories. He did that to me and that's how I feel. And I really got interested in the stories and I got interested in people's lives and I got interested in the law. And from there, I went to work for the CPS and from the CPS, I went to work in criminal law, um, uh, defence and then social services in adoption and fostering. So when did you make the decision to do an MA in creative writing, which you did at Oxford Brooks? Um, well, I started writing when I was about 45. I'd adopted a little boy who was very ill. I had to stop work. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'll write a book. How hard can it be? Hard is the answer, hard. <laughs> and when I realised I wasn't very good at it, I did um, an MA in creative writing. And the MA in creative writing that I did was absolute rubbish have to say, it was not good. It was only three and a half thousand pounds then. They're 10,000 pounds now, or nine, nine and a half, I think. Um, and when I did mine, it wasn't very good, but I met really interesting people. And I met other writers who were trying to do what I was trying to do. Someone you could have a conversation about a comma with. You know, at last I'd found my tribe. So although it wasn't a good course, it was very good for me to do that. Um, and after I did, in fact, I got my first, um, I nearly said prize. I did, it wasn't even a prize. So I got what's called in uh, publishing an honorary mention. So there's first, second, third. Then there's a short list. Then there's a long list. And under the long list, about number 75, is called an honorary mention. And I got an honorary mention. And that was my first thing. And that really spurred me on to carry on writing. And then how did you move forward from that point in terms of moving towards getting something published? Um, I wrote two novels, um, both works of staggering genius. Staggering works of genius. I'm not quite sure how you say it. But anyway, great books. <laughs> that no one else understood or appreciated. Um, so I did those, I wrote those, and couldn't get them published. So got so far down the publishing route, and no, you know, no one wanted to publish them. And I was absolutely gutted. And I really, I'd, I'd, I'd won some competition, short story prizes, flash fiction. And I thought, I can't do it, so I'll just carry on writing short stories. I'll never be able to write that novel. Um, and out of desperation, it has to be said, uh, with no expectations of success, I wrote My Name is Leon. And I wrote it uh, probably in about nine months. And I believed then that no one would be, you know, social workers would read it, your mum's going to read it, your friends have got to read it and say it's great. And no one else will, because I had no success with my other two books. So I thought this was going to go the, the same way, but at least I'd be doing something, you know, I'd be writing a novel. Um, and I was shocked. I was shocked to find that actually that was the one, the one that I didn't, pour over the plot 
you know, the one that I just wrote completely from the heart and completely with no expectation was the one that got published. Did you get an agent then during the process of My Name is Leon? Um, because it went to auction and it was the subject of a fierce bidding war. Had that attracted an agent's attention or did you take it as a manuscript? So someone? for my first two novels, I I did have an agent, a, a good agent, and she sacked me. There's not many people that get sacked by their agents, but I did get sacked by my agent, so that's, that's a badge of honour. She said that she was going on maternity leave. When she couldn't sell the second novel, she said, I'm going on maternity leave, don't wait for me. Uh, so I didn't. Um, but she did say, look, there's another agent who's just starting off and she might be interested. So I tried the other agent and I just thought, you know, again, I didn't have any expectations. And it proved to be Jo Onwin, who's fantastic. And yeah, she, she took the book to auction. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist and short story writer, Kit Duval. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week, we're going to hear from the novelist and screenwriter, David Nichols of One Day Fame. And he's going to share with us the most important trait a writer should have. Well, often ideas come from the most unexpected places. And for that reason, you really need to read and watch as much as you can. Just always be consuming because film, television, books, stories in all their forms, poetry, uh, non-fiction articles, it's all food. It's all fuel. It all, it all will filter into your work in ways that you really can't anticipate. And so always be reading, always be watching, always be... Uh, reading and watching as a writer, thinking, I love how I feel reading this book. How did the writer do it? I love the sensations I'm having as a viewer here. How are they achieved? Uh, and the more you read, the more you watch, the, the, the more insight you'll have as to how these effects come about. That was David Nichols. And if you were interested in what David had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Kit Duval. You've talked and written about making your way into publishing from a working class background. Um, could you talk about that a bit and particularly what, whether you think there's been substantive change in the past five years or so, or if it's been more cosmetic? And then also particularly about where money fits in with this. So we make it as a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and where it fits in with people's writing lives. How has that worked for, for you in particular? And then also in terms more generally in the world of publishing? It's hard for anyone to get published. So it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that if you're middle class, you're automatically going to get your book published. That's not how it works. It's hard for everybody. Um, and of course, good writing is what everyone wants to read. You know, they don't say, well, that's, working class writers, so the standards are different. You know, we're going to promote them beyond their ability or we're going to promote that book, even if it's bad. So it's difficult for everybody. What is much more difficult for working class writers is that the publishing industry happens to be London. If you're not in London, and most of the country isn't in London, then you will find that you'll 
miss out on events. You'll miss out on author readings. If, uh, at eight, for example, I can remember the agent that sacked me. She said when she brought me down to London to sack me, and she um, she said, "Come down to London Tuesday at ten o'clock, and we'll have a conversation about your second manuscript." Of course, I think she's going to say, "You know, it, I've got a publisher for you." I didn't know that, but anyway, she said, "Come down to London Tuesday at two o'clock. Tuesday at, at ten o'clock in the morning is peak hour rail fare." That's like £130, but n very few people are going to go, could I come in the afternoon because I'm a bit embarrassed because I haven't got that sort of money. So that come down to London, you know, for all these events, disproportionately affects working class writers and people beyond the M25. Then you have, if you're working class, you're working, you might be working two jobs, you might be working three jobs. So the time that you've got to dedicate to writing is so much less. Then, of course, there's the who's reading your writing. It's the content of your writing. If you're writing about working class lives, the publishing industry is made up of 43% of, you know, um, well, it's one of the most, actually, I should say, it's one of the most middle class professions to go into is publishing and the arts generally. So who's reading your book about the streets of Scunthorpe? Somebody who may not have any, any experience of that, may not find it interesting. All the good writing in the world won't help you if the person reading it does not value what you're saying, does not value your experience, does not value what you're saying. So some of, some of it is institutional and systemic problems with the publishing industry. That's not to say the publishing industry is saying, we don't want working class stories. They do want working class stories. They just don't know how to get them, keep them, and also keep the writers. And of course, people think, I'm going to write a book, and I'll get it published, and I'll be able to stop doing what I do. And the average advance for a writer is about £5,000. So that book that took you two and a half years or three years to write... And a publisher goes, oh, my God, it's great. Yes, I'll publish it. Here's £5,000. You're not leaving your job. You know, you... And also, that £5,000 does not go into your bank account today. It's like you get 25% on signature. You get another 25% when it comes out and another 20 So you're getting this money, this five grand, after 15% to your agent, and you're getting it in bits and drabs, and it... Of course, you have the joy of being published, and that's great. But it isn't enough to make to give you the opportunity to give up what you're doing and write full time. Very few people can do that, um, and there is change. There's great change going on in the industry, and people really trying very hard. All the middle class people that get slagged off for being middle class are trying very hard to change the system. And, and as well as working class people agitating from the outside and people from inside the industry trying very hard to change it. And there's real change going on and a lot of goodwill. Of course, a long, long way to go, if ever. And, and you know, being brutal about it, the industry is never going to come out of London. It's never going to come out of London. There, uh, some publishers have got satellite offices in Newcastle or Leeds. Uh, and they'll remain satellite offices. It's never going to sort of, you know, up sticks and move to Birmingham. Who would? But, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think there's a long way to go, but it is slowly changing. 
One of the arguments that we've um, seen and read about and when we've interviewed publishers, we've sort of touched on as well, is that exact point about advances and royalties um, and how that keeps out um, working class writers. How might that system be reformed in a way that would be more hospitable to working class writers? In terms of advances? Yeah. Um, I think the, I mean, the industry is never going to pay more money. You know, the, the industry, it's a business. Publishing is a business, just like if they're selling tyres or sanitary towels. It's a profit. It's a profit-led business. Um, and the industry, I, I think, could try to look at different models of publishing. For example, there's independent publishers. They pay even less, by the way. But they're much more in touch with the people that want to read the books. And I think if there's new market, there are markets out there of people that don't read books because they don't see themselves reflected in the stories. They don't read books because they think they're not for me. They don't read, read books for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they feel um, outside of events like this. They wouldn't come to a literary event. They wouldn't know where to sit or what do I say or who am I to go to a literary festival. I think if we look at new audiences, it would increase readers and it would perhaps lead to greater advances. But it's, it's as I say, it's a business. You know, people will be recompensed as, as to what they think, the number of books they think they can sell. It's interesting you say that because we have these discussions, as Rachel said, with publishers. And one thing we, we often do is ask them what um, proportion of their turnover they spend on uh, paying writers. And without exception, they all freak out when we ask that question. <laughs> and, and often they become extremely uncomfortable because, you know, it's, it's a really low percentage, right? I mean, I think for, for a big major, it might be 30% at, at max, you know? So, I mean, to say that there isn't more money there, these are highly profitable organizations, you know, and the, the power balance between the writers and the publishers is extremely uneven. Is there not an argument that effectively what is needed here is, is unionization of some sort or more strong and rigorous collective bargaining on the behalf of, you know, writers and people representing them? Yeah, I mean, that would be great. There is a union of sorts called the Society of Authors. But, I, you know, when you've spent three years writing a book, it's so precious to you that if someone says they'll publish it for a pound, you'll say yes. You will say yes. And until there's an alternative to the big four, I think it is the big four, not the big five, um, who can really get your books in, in the spotlight, we will continue to have that imbalance of power because you want your book out there. Not everyone wants to self-publish their book on, Kindle, uh, as a, on Amazon or you know, online or Vanity Publish or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But some people want it in, in WH Smiths and Waterstones. Very few publishers can get their books in Waterstones. So you, you're so desperate when you're an author, that's what you want to happen. Could we roll back now and talk about My Name is Leon, um, your hit debut novel, which was published in 2016. Um, where did the idea for that come from? You said it only took only nine months to write it. Um, but how did the seed of the idea come to you? Um, one of the fantastic books that I wrote that couldn't get published, um, in that book was um, a, a man of 43 uh, called Leon, and Leon, um, the novel, started life as a character study of him. So it was a short story uh, at first. I sent it to about five competitions. It didn't get anywhere. And 
like I say, out of desperation, I decided to turn it into a novel. So it started off as, I mean, Leon, to me, is not a nine-year-old boy. He's 43. And this is just his backstory. Um, I will write the book when he's 43. I will write that book properly next but one. Um, but it is, um, it's just the backstory of somebody I feel I know very, very well. So the book sold at auction um, and was a, a big hit. And then you used a proportion of your advance to set up a, a fellowship for people to attend a creative writing course. Could you tell us a bit more about that as process? And then also, given you said your, your kind of ambiguous experience of going through creative writing education yourself, what you were hoping to achieve with that and how it's worked out? Um, so the scholarship that I set up was uh, a, a fully funded scholarship to do an MA in creative writing at Birkbeck University, so not the one I went to. And I knew Birkbeck was good because I knew the person that ran the course. And I heard the way she spoke about her students and she really, really cared. So I knew that creative writing MAs can work. It just it didn't for me. So I put up the fees and it was in Birkbeck and I didn't want it to be London-centric so I made sure that the travel bursary was enough so that you could get from about Manchester... It runs one day a week, the Birkbeck one, with a lot of home study. So I worked out you could get as far as Manchester or Birmingham and still go and do it at Birkbeck. So there was a very generous travel bursary. And also subsistence. And one of the other things about being a working-class writer is that if you do not just work, uh, a writer, but if you're working class as a mature student and you go to university, so many of the conversations happen over a cup of coffee, over lunch, we're all going to go out for a drink. If you're broke, it's so embarrassing when, oh, we're all going to go for coffee. No, I won't go, I won't go. Because it's three quid or it's five quid or I won't have lunch with all of you who are talking about what I'm interested with because I can't afford it, or I've got sandwiches, or I'm embarrassed in some way. So there was a lot of subsistence. So whoever went and, and got the scholarship could afford to have a coffee and get, get there. And then I was very cheeky, and I asked um, Jamie Oliver for some input, which I got. And the staff at Birmingham Waterstones donated the reading list, which was substantial. That's the staff, by the way, at Waterstones, not Waterstones, Waterstones Birmingham, the staff themselves paid for that. Um, got nothing against Waterstones, but I think it's important to say that. Um, another friend of mine donated a laptop. Um, Penguin donated to the top 10 people that applied a day with an editor, a bag of books. My agent gave the top five um, a, a talk and everything. So I, st I started it and I, I gave something. But so many people rallied around um, that idea that in the end there were three scholarships. We were able to give three scholarships and it's still running and it's still, I hope, changing lives or at least letting people think that they've got a fighting chance. When it came to writing My Name is Leon, am I right in thinking you didn't do that much research because it was drawing on your experiences working, not in foster care, but you were aware of it from your, from your legal work? Yes, so I had worked in um, criminal law. If you work in criminal law, inevitably your clients go to prison, men and women and children go into care. So the firm I was working in, um, we ended up doing family law by default. 
So I saw, and I also have adopted two children. I've been on the adoption panel. I moved out of working in criminal law and family law into working for social services and training foster carers in the care of children that go into foster care. So uh, um, I didn't have to do any research really for to write My Name is Leon, except for the price of curly whirlies in 1981, <laughs> which is 10 pence. 20 pence, 20 pence, 20 pence. Uh, and also how long you hold a curly whirly for before it melts. That was important research I had to do. Um, what else did I do, the research? I did seduce, I used to have an allotment, so I had to do a little bit of research on um, certain plants. But really, no, I didn't have to do, I, you know, it's set in 1981, I was 21 in 1981, I remember it very well. So a lot of the stuff that went on was drawn from my own experience, um, experience of the children that um, I saw come through the adoption process and some of the foster carers I knew and um, what I feel about uh, foster care, children in foster care. I was wondering what social class you feel you occupy or identify with now because you've written extensively about um, coming from a working class background but also you've said you know you live a very middle class lifestyle now and you publish under the last name of your your ex-husband as well who's um, you know a, a very intellectual European Jewish family your brother-in-law wrote The Hair with the Amber Eyes how do you feel you where you sort of sit on that spectrum as it were now and, and do you feel any sense of dislocation or or kind of removal um, I feel absolutely no sense of dislocation and removal I will always be working class nothing will ever change for me ever doesn't I mean class is actually nothing to do with money anyway there's lots of impoverished gentry who haven't got two pennies to rub together but certainly are upper class aristocrats sometimes with with no money um, and if you think about um, Marcus Rashford very very wealthy still a working class man so your class is so little to do with your lifestyle um you you're, you know you can call yourself working class and not struggle you can call yourself working class and have 10 cars and a holiday home so it's much more to do in fact there's a there's a um academic called david o'brien who's done a whole study on class and what defines you because when i wrote Common Pe uh, edited Common People, which is an anthology of 32 memoir of working class people. And so many people wrote to me and said, my dad was a factory manager and my mom was a dinner lady. Can you tell me what class I am? No, I can't tell you what class you are. You know, it's about who you identify with, who you, how you feel about your class. And I think nobody can tell anybody what class they are or should be. That's for you to define, but for academics, they do have to define it for research purposes. And David O'Brien um, has worked out that your class is defined for his purposes, academic purposes, by what your main uh, breadwinner did up until the age of 14, your 14. So how you were brought up by the, the employment of your parents or caregiver um, up to you, you were 14. That would make me absolutely working class but even if that wasn't the case I am as I say my lifestyle and my children would say they were middle class definitely my children would say they were middle class 
I couldn't change, I wouldn't want to, and I couldn't change my class no matter what. We're coming towards the end of our time, so to change tack briefly, um, I want to ask about your screenwriting. Yes. Um, am I right in thinking you wrote a few scripts early on and sort of abandoned them, and then also how screenwriting as a process influences your novel writing as a process? I did start off writing screen, uh, scripts. One of the things that, uh, one of the few warm rooms in our house as children was the telly room where my dad sat and watched old black and white films. So I was brought up on film and I really did think I'd be a screenwriter first. Um, abandoned it because I wasn't very good. Wrote novels. Um, have come back to screenwriting now. I've written you know, episodes of a few things that have been on television. I'm adapting a couple of books by other writers at the moment and my second novel's being adapted by me um how does it influence my novel writing it doesn't really I think my novel writing influences the storytelling that you have to do in a script also scripts are collaborative and to any novel writer that's just like oh hate it hate it so for a novel you're in charge you want to kill someone they die you want to marry someone they get married you want to love somebody you want to go to the moon, you want to go underground, you want to be a pixie or a fairy, you can do it. Script writing's different because you might say, that's going to be a pixie underground. They say, well, could it be a centipede? And you don't know it's a pixie. It's really hard to take on board other people's ideas and I don't do it very well at all. Um, I'm getting better. I'm getting much better, but it's hard to be collaborative when you're used to having godlike powers it's difficult to share them around a question that we always put to novelists who we have on the show is is whether to use the vernacular that we've either developed or stolen they're a, a plotter or a plunger so whether they're someone who works out uh, their narrative in advance or whether they dive in and follow their nose or their subconscious and it seems that you're you're very much a plotter from what i've seen Massively, elsewhere and yes. particularly this use of of index cards and and shifting yeah. them around could you tell us a bit about your method for constructing plot and and why and how that works for you it's much worse than an index card it's a spreadsheet um so i will think and think and think and daydream i love daydreaming it's the best thing in the world and I won't do anything for months, maybe six months. The, the novel I'm writing at the moment that I had to abandon, I'm back with that now. And there's a lot of thinking to be done um, before the spreadsheet stage. Then when I think I know what I want to write, I'll do a spreadsheet. It's got columns, it's got a timeline, it's got little symbols, it's work of beauty. Um, and then once I've done the spreadsheet, which will probably be about... 12 pages um, a table looks great colour coordinated I will not look at that again I'll be able to write without ever looking at it but I have to know it's there if I wanted to look at it um, but I, w I won't look at it I'll know it so well but I have to go through that process there's so many writers great writers brilliant writers friends of mine who, who just think that's terrible and they will just sit down and write and see what comes out and then change it and fashion it and whatever. And we're all doing the same thing. My, my tr thrashing around is just in my head, not on paper. Their thrashing around's on paper. So it doesn't really matter what your process is as long as you get to a place where you feel when you finish, that's my best work. I've done my best work and it represents what I wanted to say. Um, as a final question from me, I'm 
Well, I was delighted that you brought up Jamie Oliver because I saw in one interview that you said that he gave you the best piece of advice you'd ever had. I wonder yes. if you can remember. Okay, can you share what it is with the, with um, the audience? So I was at... When, when publishers sign a big uh, book, they do this thing which is a conference and there's hundreds of booksellers there and hundreds of people... And, you know, they trot out their big books of 2016 or whatever it is. And so I found myself in a tent a bit like this with Jamie Oliver, Joanna Trollope, John le Carre. And I was like, oh, my God. I was so amazed that I ever got to be in this space. And Jamie Oliver was there. And I decided to go up and ask him if he would give the 15 shortlisted people of the scholarship that I'd just set up, a free meal in one of his restaurants. What have I got to lose? He was so lovely, so generous, and he did give us a meal with champagne in one of his restaurants. Uh, There was 20 of us, and he was just great. But he did say to me, he did, uh, when he'd offered to do that, he said, get your people to talk to my people. I said, people? What's, What's people? He said, you've got people. If you're here, you've got people. I didn't know what he was talking about, but I thought, push that to one side. Um, And then he said, oh, you're a new author, blah, blah, blah. And the advice he gave me was, always be yourself, because you can never go wrong and you can never get tired. And he was so right about being yourself. It's very easy, if you've got any kind of a public profile, to not be yourself or to forget yourself or to lose yourself. Um... And I think he's himself. I don't know him. Obviously, I've only met him the once. But he seems to be very much himself. He seems to be on television. And I've always tried to, to very much be myself and to be what you see is what you get so that I don't lose my way because it would be easy. And a final question from me before we uh, open it to questions. What, what's next for you? What is your next project? What are you working on at the moment? I've gone back to the abandoned novel and found it's not very good. Um, so I'm rethinking about it at the moment um, and I think I've got to subtract a person and a plot line if it's ever going to see the light of day I'm about 60,000 words into it and at least half of them are going to go good luck with the execution literally <laughs> um, thank and you. thank you very much for speaking to us today thank you That was the Always Take Notes interview with Kit Deval. Her website is kitdeval.com. She's on Twitter at Kit Deval, and her latest book, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, is published by Tinder Press. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout-out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Kit? Well, this was a brave new world for me, at least, because I know in the early days of always take notes. Um, you did live events pretty frequently. Um, so, yeah, 
it was interesting doing it in front of a crowd rather than on Zoom in the little room at the top of my house. Um, but I thought it went really well. And Kit, I thought, was a perfect guest. She was really entertaining um, and gregarious and had lots of fascinating things to say, um, particularly about coming to publishing and writing later in life. Um, and of course, working class representation and the challenges that the industry faces in terms of diversifying in that regard. Uh, how about you? Yeah, again, I, I thought it was um, fascinating, just a different format. I mean, as you say, right right at the very beginning of the podcast life, we did do a few um, live events, but they were much more informal just in the, in the top room of a pub. So this was this was in the salubrious surroundings of the William Morris tent, which included William Morris drapery. Um, and, you know, the festival were, were great and uh, excellent to do it with them. I think what I found interesting is it, it's, it is a distinct dynamic because, I, you know, when you have an audience there, uh, as you say, we tend to do our interviews on Zoom and that's a, a kind of almost dramatically unglamorous format in a sense. And everyone is sitting at home and there's no audience. And I think in, in some ways, what you do draw from that is a kind of real candor because, you know, people are, it's just, it's just the three of us. Whereas with, with an audience, you have a, um, a performative element. And as you say, Kit was great for that because she's very funny and she has her quips and stuff. But I was, I was conscious while we were doing it that it is just a different thing doing it in front of an audience. People are, are playing to the crowd and, and that creates a, um, a different dynamic, not better or worse, just, just different. But I hope it's something that we can do uh, more of in future. And yeah, we, it looks like we've, we've introduced some more people to the podcast. So really pleased with that. And a big thank you to Wimbledon for having us. Very much so. It was a it's a great event, and hopefully we'll do more. So, if listeners have any recommendations for book festivals they'd like to see us at, they should send them our way. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.